This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we talk to the academic and writer Will Ghosh about A Bend in the River by V.S. Naipaul, a novel described by Anthony Burgess as, quote, beautifully composed with an almost Conradian power of description. Set in a fictional African country, A Bend in the River tells the story of Salim, a shopkeeper of Indian descent who moves from the east coast of Africa to set up shop inland at an unnamed town near the river's bend of the title. There, he becomes embroiled in the rise of an ultra-nationalist dictatorship whose leader, known as the Big Man, is determined to reclaim Africa for the Africans. It's a complex novel about the difficulties of newly independent nations and the ambiguous legacies of the colonial period. Working with a small cast of main characters, Naipaul presents the genesis of an African dictatorship, but his novel is equally critical of the white European presence and its negative effects on a recently independent nation. First published in 1979, A Bend in the River is a disturbing work which explores the violence and disorder which often go hand in hand with aggressively nationalistic regimes. Savidia Naipaul was born in 1932 in Chaguanas in Trinidad. He travelled widely across the world and lived primarily in England from the age of 18. He was one of the most celebrated Caribbean writers of his generation, winning the Booker Prize and the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2001. He's best known for his early novel, A House for Mr Biswas, but he also wrote significant works of autobiography and travel literature, including books about India, Malaysia, Iran, Indonesia, the southern states of America and the Caribbean. He died in 2018. Will Ghosh teaches Victorian and modern literature at Jesus College in the University of Oxford. His research focuses on Caribbean and South Asian literatures after 1945 and he has written extensively about V.S. Naipaul. He published his first book, V.S. Naipaul, Caribbean Writing and Caribbean Thought, in 2020. In the description of this episode, you can find links to Will's writing about V.S. Naipaul, and also a list of books mentioned in this episode. Here's Andrew Biswell of the Burgess Foundation, who spoke to Will Ghosh in February 2022. Will, welcome to the... 99 Novels podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you here to talk about V.S. Naipaul, also to talk about your own work. I wonder if we might begin uh, by asking you to tell us how you came to Naipaul's work as a reader. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, when I was growing up, Naipaul was a, a name I'd heard, but was very much on the edge of, you know, the periphery of my vision. Um, and when I was a teenager, I spent a 
period of time in India. And, and that was the period when I really began to see his books um, everywhere and to, and to sort of begin to think of him as a, as a, as a very, very important literary figure. Um, and whenever one walks into a bookshop, walked in those days, um, you would have a, a very good set of night balls. And I read a couple of them. I read a couple of the travel books um, and, and sort of enjoyed them without really getting into them or really understanding them, I think. Um, and then in the in the, the the end of the long the long holiday at the end of my first year of university, I read a house for Mr. Biswas. Um, I kind of I kind of wound back to Michael and read a house for Mr. Biswas, and that was one of the sort of transformational reading experiences um, that that one's lucky enough to have every now and then. Of just I, I think I read it in two or three days and just imaginatively and intellectually just kind of inhabited it um and and was completely fascinated by um both the world he was presenting and and the voice of the novel and the technique of the novel and was d deeply affected by it and um in the, in the way that you could in those days um before every vacation had to be filled with internships and and that those kinds of things. Uh, I just had a wonderful kind of voracious summer of, you know, going down to Waterstones and buying the next one and and reading it and and, and you know repeating that cycle over and over again. And I just sort of got lost in it. So that's that's how I that's how I discovered Naipaul. Now, in your book, B.S. Naipaul: Caribbean Writing and Caribbean Thought, you've made a very strong case for a house for Mr. Biswas and The Loss of El Dorado, and the travel books as significant works within the Naipaul canon. I wonder, I realise it's a big question, how could you sum up Naipaul's general approach to writing and indeed his theory of the novel? It's a, it's a wonderful question. And um, as, as you allude to, um, the, my, my book kind of tracks Naipaul across different forms and kind of moving between forms, whether that's the novel the historical narrative, the travel narrative. I don't talk too much actually about the kind of autobiographical narratives or sequences that he comes to uh, later in later in his career. But I think that that expresses in some way uh, something of Naipaul's approach to writing. Um, he has this in a, in, a, in a late essay. He has this quotation which I think is quite important, where he says, "Literature, like all living art, is always on the move. It is part of its life." dominant form should constantly change. If every creative talent is always burning itself out, every literary form is always getting to the end of what it can do. Um, and and Naipaul was a you know he 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 was a writer that had this kind of constant anxiety that his his talent was burning itself out. But much more importantly, or, or in some ways this fed into an approach to writing that was formally uh, constantly kind of restless and exploratory that was always, if you like, trying to see in a given narrative form what was living, what was giving him, uh, allowing him kind of real and, 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 and accurate access to the phenomenon he was trying to describe, and what was a kind of accretion of um, convention uh, or cliche that, that was sort of now, you know, have you know, run out of things to say. Um, I, I think of Naipaul in some ways as a bit kind of just like sort of a bit like Wolf in in that way that, that that each of his works throughout his life, and I think this is what makes him you know 
fascinating for this kind of longitudinal study um, that throughout his life, each of his works is a is a an evolution is a is a new is a new is a new a new stab at 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 a, at a series of subjects that, that that often remain quite constant throughout his life, um, and and that that opens out from the novel as you know I think in the sixties the novel is everything to Nightfall, um, or in the sorry in the fifties the novel is everything to Nightfall, but that actually opens out through his life into non-fictional narrative forms into travelogue into to say historical narrative um into autobiography such that at the end of his life he's writing these things that he'll, he'll kind of call sequences um they're so plastic in terms of their, their genre in terms of their form that he he, he 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 just sort of says well these are sequences um, um so yeah that's how i that, that, that and i think that's a an interesting starting point for thinking about nightfall as a writer and understanding how his work develops um and that happens on the level of the sentence as well. You know, the, the, the early the early books, the House of Mr. Biswas particularly, he's working with these big um, kind of Proustian sentences um, with with lots of, um, uh, I, I think about them as kind of like onion sentences that, that he, he, he uses embedded clauses um, in, in enormous length in Biswas, the kind of the diversion within the sentence is very, very important. And, and you have these kind of great kind of symmetrical rooms that he builds up. Um, in the middle of his career, he's in books like Gorillas uh, and Ben in the River, he's trying to work with this much, much, much cleaner, shorter sentence. And then by the end of his career, he's working, if you like, with these kind of horizontal sentence sentences where the the the, the clauses constantly post-modify the clause that went before. So you get this incredibly granular view of a changing perception in time. Um, so so the, the, the technique is constantly changing and evolving. Thank you. I mean, that's a very good and clear assessment of how um, how Nipple sort of changes and metamorphoses over time. Now, uh, Anthony Burgess, whose podcast we're obviously on, uh, reviewed a house for Mr. Biswas, uh, I think, on publication when he was the fiction critic of the Yorkshire Post in October 1961. He read it quite straightforwardly as a comic novel, described it as a Caribbean masterpiece. And then when The Mimic Men was published, Burgess said that was a work of even greater depth. Uh, but I wonder if you could sort of take us beyond the British reception and tell us something about how Naipaul's work was received in the Caribbean in the 1960s and maybe later on? Yes. So a crucial turning point here is Naipaul's 1962 book, The Middle Passage, um, which was a travel book that was commissioned by the Trinidadian government to coincide with Trinidadian independence. Um, so he was paid to, to go back. He was living in London. He was paid to travel back to uh, the Caribbean and, and, and spend time in Trinidad and Jamaica and Guyana uh, and, and to write a, write a book about it, which would then be circulated. And, 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 and clearly it was intended to be a kind of quite a celebratory um, uh, thing. Um, not, I, I don't think anyone thought it was going to be anodyne, but I think that, you know, the, the idea was that you know, clearly, clearly this is in some sense um, a, a marking of a transition to something new. The, 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 the manuscript Nipple turned in was absolutely you know, scabrous. It was, it was, it was unbe unbelievably rude. I mean, if you read it now, it's still unbelievably rude. You still can't quite believe what he's saying. 
Um, it was deliberately provocative. Um, that's certainly true. Um, uh, there, there are letters to, to CLR James where he says, you know, I don't mind if people don't like it, but what I want to do is to, to, to get, you know, get people to defend it, to defend themselves and get people to think and get, you know, so there's, it wasn't, I think, completely thoughtless, but it was certainly, um, uh, yeah, just, just unbelievably rude. Um, and, and that, that marks a, a, a transition uh, in terms of the way that Caribbean, a lot, some some critics in the Caribbean sort of think about Nightfall's work or or um, understand Nightfall's relationship with the region he's describing. So in the 1950s, when Nightfall's first kind of satires are coming out, it's, it's very important to remember that, that, that you know, Nightfall always presented himself as this great kind of individual that had come from nowhere, and that's just not, not true. Um, he was one of a number of of, of Caribbean novelists who were working in London in the 1950s, um, people like George Lanning or Sam Selvon. Um, and um, and he was he was viewed as a he was a lot younger than them, and he was viewed as a, a, a sort of talented young comic satirical writer in the kind of war tradition, even war tradition. Um, as you say, a house for Mr. Biswas, well. Much with Burgess in, in England, in the Caribbean, at a house for Mr. Biswas. In fact, its reception in the Caribbean was much, much louder and warmer, as you might imagine, than in England. It was, it was, it was rapturously received. Um, so, in a famous essay called Roots, Edward, the, the poet, Kamar Brathwaite, who's then Edward Brathwaite, sort of gives this, you know, it kind of ends, it, this long essay about Caribbean fiction ends really with A House of Mr. Biswas and says, you know, this is it, this is, this is the great kind of capstone of the, of the novelistic tradition so far, this is, the, this is, this is the monumental piece that we'll be working on from now on. Um, but as I say, then, then we have the middle passage and after that, even by the time of the Mimic Man, the Mimic Man is, is warmly received technically, um, you know, John Hearn, Gordon Rolaire write, very, very kind of you know admiring pieces about it, uh, and and see it as a te technically as a, certainly a development on on Biswas. Whether it's better or worse, I don't know, but certainly a development from much more kind of uh, existentialist book. Um, but as as I say, there's there is a sense that some 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 kind of not contract has been broken, but. The, the view, the, the view from then on um, in, among Caribbean literary circles is certainly a lot more wary of Nightfall, um, and it becomes a kind of this kind of long-standing sibling fascination, constant kind of passive-aggressive uh, kind of barbs being sent one way or the other. I, I, I as, as I my, my book suggests, I don't think there's ever really a kind of fundamental divorce. I think there remains a deep mutual fascination between Nightfall and the region, between the writers and critics of the region and Nightfall. Um, uh, but it's there's a there's a kind of coolness and a distance after the Middle Passage. Now, A Bend in the River is the Nightfall novel that Burgess selects for his 99 novels. I suspect because this list is compiled in response to another list that the Book Marketing Council have put together. And Burgess was asked by Alison and Busby, his publishers, to uh, to do something else, to, to select, um, I suppose, more controversial or slightly more off-the-beaten-track works. Uh, but as we know, he had reviewed A Bend of the River when it first came out. Uh, one of the things he says about it in the novel now is he talks about, um, quote, an almost Conradian power of description. He says it's a beautifully composed book. 
Um, and I think all of that's true. Um, it, it is a, a remarkable novel, and perhaps um, you know it, it's quite easy to see some of those connections with Conrad. It also seems to me that it's it's quite a difficult novel in the sense of not being uh, particularly an easy read. In you know, like some of his early books have been um, the, the Miguel Street and so on. Uh, but also, it's a work that builds to this crisis point very slowly over the course of about 300 pages, uh, very rich in character and observation, but not very much kind of violent, dramatic action until we we get towards the end. I wonder if we can speculate about why Burgess was excited about this particular novel and also what uh, what new readers coming to it for the first time might expect to find there. There, there was a period in the kind of 80s, maybe even 90s, where... A Bend in the River was definitely considered Naipaul's great kind of statement. Um, and it does appear on a number of kind of, you know, 100 greatest novels of the 20th century, greatest novels in English um, uh, lists. Robert McCrum, I know, is a huge fan of it. And, and, and yes, t- today, definitely not read as much as Biswas or, or The Enigma of Arrival. Um, uh, but but I think that would have looked like a less odd choice in 1984 um, uh, than um, than it than it would look today. Uh, it, it it was also a book, you know there was a big Booker Prize controversy uh, over it when it came out that it was it was the hot hot favourite to win and people you know were saying this is a great masterpiece and then uh, Penelope Fitzgerald's Offshore won um, and I'm I'm actually a huge Penelope Fitzgerald fan. Um, so if, if you can you can watch or read the transcripts of the television interviews afterwards, and you can tell that all of the all of the journalists are ready to talk to Nightfall and have prepared a series of questions and have read A Bend in the River to talk about it. A Bend in the River is a great example of this of this pattern that I'm describing of different narrative genres uh, beginning to interweave. So Nightfall was commissioned. Think by the New York Review of Books and the Sunday Times to do a series of travel logs on uh, Joseph Mobutu's Zaire, um, and he so he goes 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 travels there. Um, he keeps he makes this kind of it's it's deeply Conradian. He he keeps what he calls it he calls the Congo Diary in kind of imitation of, of Conrad's Congo Diary, which is which is later published. Uh, he then publishes this travel log um, called A New King for the Congo. Um, and then he publishes The Bend in the River. So, so you can, it's kind of this kind of, you know, it's kind of genealogical relationship between these two texts. The, the, the Bend in the River is a, a kind of novel of a travel log. Um, and I think that's a, that, that it goes some way to sort of understanding that, what you're describing, that kind of, that quite strange narrative energy of it, that not, that you're kind of, building a sense of the place and this kind of um, this burgeoning crisis. But actually, in terms of what we might expect from the novelistic plot, not very much happens. Um, a Bend in the River is a book uh, about a man called Salim, um, who is an East African Indian character. So a kind of multiply displaced character from a multi- multiply displaced community who moves inland to set up a shop and, and, and the idea is a kind of new life in this what's called a town at the what he calls a town in the bend of the river um this, this central african town uh in a, in a in a newly independent country that's that's clearly based on Mobutu's Zaire and Salim in a sense 
acts as a kind of Nicole cipher. He's a kind of insider outsider character. He's someone who's who, who's looking at this world from um, a, a position of kind of familiarity. He, he he gets to know it slowly over time, but he's never fully of it. So the world Nicole's describing in the bend in the river, the world that Salim is looking at, is um, what Nicole saw as this kind of almost this kind of tabula rasa, a world in which um, the the kind of the infrastructures and the legal systems and the systems of education of the old the old colonial world had now gone, and that that that, that there was going to be a great we, they were in the, we were in the process of uh, a struggle to to work out what was going to replace them. Um, it's you know it could equally be set in Russia in 1993 or something like that. It's a there's a there's a sort of it, the the book has is both there's a both a sense of the kind of sheer scope of ambition that's possible in this world. Um, that how how far desire will take you, but also of this kind of sense of this kind of constantly and constantly near, just constantly at hand sense of chaos. Um, that that there's not any there's not a kind of regulating power that can that can mediate between between these these competing uh, desires these competing ambitions um, and as as Burgess says in his review you know Nipple took a very very pessimistic view of that in the end um, that there are moments in the book that are very gripping that are very exciting that are very kind of animating. Um, uh, but but the book as a whole is a very paranoid book. It's a it's a it's a it's a book where it, uh, the Celine character um, can never quite see the encroaching threat, and 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 hence has a kind of kind of phobic relationship to the world around him. That he you know that, that, that everything therefore becomes threatening. Everything therefore is just about to kind of jump out and and cut his throat. Um, uh, and I think yeah that that that. That that's why it's such a difficult novel, and why it's such a in Bur what Burgess thought was such a kind of depressing novel, um, as well as as well as a very fascinating one. Yeah, I think he enjoyed being depressed by it ultimately, but I think you put your finger on something really important, uh, and certainly that resonated for, for me as well. The the fear of chaos that's there in in Salim's narrative. Uh, he says at one point um, that there seem to be no laws, no regulations, no order. Um, a, a sense that he's he's experiencing a place that's constantly on the point of collapse. It's kind of sustained by this figure of uh, of, of the great man, the president, who never actually appears. I mean, he, his 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 visit is heralded towards the end of the book, but actually he exists as this um, as a face which keeps getting bigger on posters, and that too, I suppose, is part of the uh, the, the threat and so forth. Um, in his Observer review of Bend of the River, Burgess also suggests, I think quite helpfully, that, that the novel is about searching for stability in this place of great uncertainty. Uh, I wonder what you make of that and whether this idea might also be applied to some of Nipal's other works. Yes, I think, I think that's a, it's a very astute observation and, and it has a strong resonance with, with Nipal's other works. Nipal is very, very interested in the kinds of 
panaceas we we create for ourselves the kind of utopias we 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 reach towards um and one of the most in in across his books one of the most kind of sort of persuasive and attractive panaceas is the idea of um of of stability of groundedness of that sense of being genuinely at home in a place um and and secure in it um and in a in in a place that's in some sense unchanging and i think salim is a great example of someone who's constantly in lives lives constantly in fear um that that he and his community are about to be expelled from where they are um and in many ways he's right um in, in the world of the novel uh, that they often are so he moved you know this is obviously an indian family um or he's a muslim indian so there's an uncertainty there um who's then come to east africa who's then gone to central africa who goes to london um and there's always this sense of not not quite being at home and, and trying to reach a, a, a kind of a sense of home um i think it's also worth saying that you know for naipaul that sense of kind of the character of the migrant is an ex- an extreme and a visible example of a of a larger thing a larger phenomenon that that all of that's true of all of us um that it and this is where we connect to his other books and you see in books like a bend in the river when we try and sort of immure ourselves or immure ourselves uh would be a better way of putting it within you know, in inverted commas, sort of changeless, stable worlds. In this case, we're talking about kind of rural England. That is always, to some extent, a fiction that we're creating for ourselves. Um, that is always, to some extent, kind of shutting out the the, the, the hard work of kind of change and renewal that, that, that all communities and all policies need um, to just to, to, to stay alive. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a rich sense, um, so I think yeah, that's a that's a that 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 the desire for a stable home is is both a kind of an animating pull for so many of Naipaul's characters. I mean, uh, to, to to make an obvious point, you know, a house for Mister Biswas um, is all about that sense of trying to find somewhere where you can be at home, um, and yet, it, as in that book, it, you know. The, the 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 homes that one finds are always part in fact halfway homes they're always in, you never quite have sovereignty over them they're never quite secure from the world outside they're never quite you know um immune to to time and change um and to 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 to, to think that they are is to shut oneself away from the world is to retreat into fanaticism uh, in my course view it's very interesting how the, these um, kind of thematic preoccupations uh, deploy themselves in very different forms and styles throughout the work. And, and you, as you're talking, it's got, I'm seeing connections opening up with, with the late work, but also with some of the earlier books as well. And I mean, that, that leads me to just wanting to say that as a reader, I mean, not an expert by any means, but, you know, over the last, I don't know, 25 years, I've, I've, um, I've read many not all of Naipaul's books and it seems to me that he doesn't quite fit the the standard picture that the standard literary historical picture of 20th century fiction um and as a reader I'm never sure if his books are 
late colonial or post-colonial or indeed something else again. Uh, he's also, and I think this too may be important, he's a maverick writer, very self-consciously, who reinvents the form, as Burgess did, incidentally, with each book. And you can never quite guess what he's going to write or publish next. Uh, but I wonder if all that makes it quite difficult to accommodate him within the histories of the 20th century and the 21st century novel. I think that's true. Yes, I think there's a, a that there's a lot of truth to that. And the other, just the other kind of way in which I think he's interstitial uh, is, of course, in terms of region. Um, is he an Indian writer? Really? Is he a Caribbean writer? Is he a British writer? Lots of his works published in America for the first, you know, in the New York books and things like that. There's a, there's a, yeah, he he's he's also sort of navigating between these places as well. Um. I think something that's really important to remember with Naipaul is that, or, or, or just a, a helpful way in which I conceive it in my head, is that Naipaul was 30 when Trinidad becomes independent. He's already living in London by that time, of course, but I, that's just a helpful kind of thing for me because it, it, you can realise that, you know, Naipaul's formation, you know, really into maturity, almost the first half of his life, is lived in, if you like, that dispensation, um, the colonial dispensation. And then the years of fame happen afterwards in, in a different world. And that's one of the kind of the great subjects of Naipaul, I think, is um, is about that, that experience of um, living in an unfamiliar world, living in a world that you weren't prepared for seeing the world with a kind of conceptual and cultural vocabulary and through a, through a conceptual lens that is now antiquated, um, that, that, that's no, no longer quite, quite clarifies what's going on in front of you. So, uh, yeah. Um, and as, as you say, a, a, a writer who constantly slips between forms. I think for a while uh, in, should we say, the 1980s probably, um, in a sense, this sense of being everything, um, being a, an Indian writer and a Caribbean writer and a British writer, being a travel writer and a history writer and a fiction writer and a public intellectual and a novelist and a colonial writer and a post-colonial writer, and you know, um, allowed Naipaul to occupy a place of kind of cultural centrality that very, very few novelists do. Um, you know, this was the Naipaul on the cover of Newsweek, the Naipaul who Barack Obama sort of talked about on leaving office as one of his great kind of influences, the, um, the, the kind of the, yeah, the, this, 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 the Pico Ear, the, the Indian writer at one point says, you know, in the 90s, you were told, you know, if you're an intellectual, to, to understand the modern world, you've got to read Naipaul. Um, so it, it allows that moment of kind of, of, of centrality. Um, in public discourse, um, but but as you say, it, it, when that moment is gone, there's the, it's 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 hard to say there's one lineage in which Naipaul is kind of position, positioning himself, or there's one uh, kind of moment, uh, precisely because his work is so varied, um, and and frankly his career is so long, and and is speaking to, to so many different audiences in so many different ways. And I think in if I were to say sort of the the legacy, the Naipaulian legacy to the present, it is something that I think we see more and more today of the, 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 the novel that's 
genealogically and in its concerns definitely move beyond fictionality in a very straightforward sense of the novel that's incredibly autobiographical. And it was interesting reading um, both Burgess's introduction to uh, the, the, the 99 novels book and then his, his, his review of, of um, Beginning of Arrival. He's, he really says, well, this just isn't a novel. Um, and that's something that's more and more um, obviously fashionable and popular today. That's not just, a, if you like, a coincidence. Um, if you listen to the work, you know, there's a, uh, we think about the great kind of writers of autofiction, people like Deborah Levy or Carlo de Nausgaard. Um, they're both very influenced by Nightfall. Uh, Nausgaard gives a New Yorker podcast where he just reads the opening of Enigma Arrival at enormous detail and sort of talks at enormous length and then talks in great detail about, about what, what's going on there. And, and Ditto, Ditto Deborah Levy spoken a lot about, about the influence of Nightfall on precisely this, what she was trying to do with the novel. Um, and this, this blurring of, of autobiography and novel. Um, uh, I think I think something that I'd like to see more of, um, I mean, not, not that Nicole's politics are my own, um, I think that's gone down, the often goes down a route that can be quite kind of inward looking. And Nicole's sort of experiments with nonfiction and fiction are often not, not inward looking, as in The Bending River. Um, there's, there's a... The, 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 the non-fictional elements that are coming in there are also our reportage, our you know outward historical work, are kind of an outward-looking contemplation, um, uh, which I think, yeah, which I think was very important to him. This is something else I wanted to ask you about. Was the uh, there was a period in the eighties and nineties when Naipaul had almost stopped writing novels, um, and I'm thinking of his his sort of big travel books, uh, India, um, The Million Mutinies Now, and also the, um, the, the pair of books uh, about his, his travels in, in what I think he calls uh, Islamic countries, uh, travels in the Islamic world. I wonder what's the significance of that work in relation to the novels that come before it and the novels that come later on? Well, that's a really interesting question. So for me, uh, I find those books that you're talking about among them, the kind of least sustaining of Nightfall's works. I, I would read them, I've, I've read them once and I, you know, um, they're, they're clearly not irrelevant um, because certainly among the believers and a million mutinies now are really two of the, you know, big books that he works on. And, and in terms of the way they're marketed, they're marketed as these kind of big statements. Um, I think, I think one thing that you see a lot in A Million Mutinies Now, particularly, is this very, very detailed listening. I mean, one way of reading A Million Mutinies Now is, is, a, is a kind of series of character studies where you just stand in front of a speaker and let them speak and let them speak and let them speak. Um, that, that certainly comes into his later work. Um, whole sections of Away in the World, for example, are, are, are this. And, and as we've said, clearly they, they emerge out of this growing interest in the travel log as a, as a, as a, way, of, a way of thinking, uh, a, a, way of, a way of reflecting on the world, a kind of affording a kind of a realistic, realist meditation that, 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 that particular forms of conventional novel don't, don't afford. So, yeah, I can see their centrality um, and clearly they're, they're important books. Uh, I... I, I don't know if anyone that yeah, 
perhaps perhaps people still do read them. I don't know. Um, I, I I find it hard to properly integrate them. Yeah, I, well, I think they're very difficult books to read. I mean, one quite interesting thing he says is that when he's doing all these interviews in India, he never makes any notes uh, that all of the, the the dialogues or the monologues are kind of recollected uh, later on, um, and that makes me wonder, you know, the extent to which he's uh, he, he's embroidering around what was said and and sort of entering into the character who is supposedly speaking, sort of representing that on the page. I mean. If they, but you're right. They're they're um they they lack the sort of plotted satisfactions of of his fictions in all kinds of ways. Yeah, and and I think they're also different from you know there are lots of his travelogues I adore. You know, I think An Era of Darkness is a completely wonderful book. Uh, in its way, A Turn in the South is a wonderful book. Um, but they they they're kind of they have a those books have a kind of structure, uh, and and on some level they're about him. Um, I think, that, yeah, I think the, the, the travel logs that I find most interesting are the ones that are most explicitly really about Naipaul. Uh, Naipaul is a commentator on contemporary Malaysian politics, I can take or leave. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, but, but, but as I say, I think, say, yeah, both of those, the turn and uh, area, are really Naipaul exploring uh, his, his own subjectivity and formation and the kind of the, the architecture of colonial learning all of his books are kind of exploring in, in dialogue with the world. And I find those fascinating. And, and that, that's, the tra- that's the strand of the travelogue that I think we then see come out in The Enigma of Arrival, say, um, uh, which is not uh, a kind of grand statement on Indian politics or any kind of, yeah, uh, but, a, but rather, a, yeah, is a, this, this, this a, a way of, of a, te- a, a record of, a subjectivity, a record of, of, of patterns of looking um, uh, and patterns of attention that that, that, that reveal as much about the the, the, the eye, um, uh, the, the, the direction of the gaze, the lens through which it sees, as they do about what's being looked at. Um, that's the for me. That's the fascination of the Naipaul travel book. Now, towards the end of his life. Naipaul rejects the category Trinidadian writing, and he says that he would prefer to be compared with uh, writers like Evelyn Waugh, George Orwell, Anthony Pohl, and Cyril Connolly, for example. Um, and uh, of course, I always wonder if there's an element of um, a provocation about such statements, which he made all the time. But do you think there are other ways of contextualizing his work that readers might find more helpful than that? I think this statement has it's 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 a kind of a partial truth, um, and I think as as you were mentioning, you know, Naipaul is as we were discussing, Naipaul is so hard to pin down into a place or a position or um, that it it, it it can you know it can be helpful to have this kind of sort of three dimensional way of thinking of and um, I say it's at one point in my book that you know what I'm certainly not trying to say is you know Naipaul can only be understood in this in this tradition. You know, Naipaul was a Caribbean writer with a capital C, capital W, whatever that means. Um, but just to say, you know, there's th- this tradition illuminates certain aspects of Naipaul's work and, and helps us understand uh, certain of his kind of ideas and preoccupations and so on. And I think the same would be true of looking at Naipaul in, in terms of his relationship with his, his British contemporaries. Um, uh, personally, I, I think, you know, I, I can't I can't imagine why someone at the end of I mean, I think that what this can only come from a kind of a sense of, you know, of. I, I just cannot imagine why a writer of Naipaul's 
kind of ability and scope would get to the end of his career and ask to be compared to Cyril Connolly. That just baffles me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that to, to me, that I mean, I think, I think War is a, a great, great master, of course, but um, you know, uh, you know <laughs> unless you have a, a breathtakingly kind of Anglo centric view of. Of, of fiction, you know, what, you know, why would you want to, you know, anyway, um, 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 but, but that certainly war, you know, there, there is a kind of, there is a Naipaul that's, um, uh, that's very warlike, uh, particularly, you know, it's the satirical, that's very, that's very acerbic, that's, that's, that's quite pessimistic, that's, um, I think that's a, that's a, that's a real thing. And of course, war read the early Naipaul, uh, and, and uh, you know there are there are letters where he talks about Naipaul and, and Naipaul. What he, he clearly recognised very early Naipaul's talents. He he had you know there were some slightly less savoury things he says about Naipaul on a kind of racial level. But um, uh, but that, that that that's a that's a clear connection, and I think a really a really good one in terms of understanding something about Naipaul and, and understanding that you know Naipaul was of course writing in Lon- the London of the nineteen sixties um, uh, and the nineteen fifties, even the kind of mid century London. Um, and, and that must have left a left a left a print. Um, I think other you know the kind of great writers that Naipaul read and reread. Um, Proust was certainly one. Naipaul was very very interested in Proust throughout his life. Um, uh, another British a British writer he really he 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 wrote very warmly about as a reviewer was Muriel Spark. Interestingly, perhaps in that war tradition. Um, and then there are Indian writers who who really fascinated him, particularly, and this is predictable in terms of Chowdhury's kind of the, the way he saw the world. But Nira C. Chowdhury's autobiography of an unknown Indian was a great fascination for, for Naipaul. Um, towards the end of his life, he talks about Buddenbrooks. I think he he likes these kinds of big, spacious, um, kind of autobiographical narratives. Um, yeah, he's he's a he's a kind of he, he's at heart a, a kind of realist in the in the great tradition, um, a realist with a capital R. Not not that what he says is necessarily particularly realistic or true. So when we look back on Naipaul's career as a whole, how do you think we should remember him? I mean, for for, for which books? What are the the kind of uh, the, the high points and the the kind of strong aspects of his, his his career and his signature and so forth? In terms of books, I think the two books that that will last of Naipaul's, I think I think there are lots of, Naipaul wrote a lot of great books. I think Naipaul probably wrote five or six great books. Um, but I think the two that I would say are the absolute monuments um, that I would be sort of sad if they fell into neglect would be A House for Mr. Biswas, his great comic picaresque novel from the first half of his career and The Enigma of Arrival, his extraordinary autobiographical meditation um, at the end of his career. And if I were to sum up what I, you know, what's interesting or important about Naipaul, I would say that I think Naipaul is one of the great writers about patrimony and inheritance. And I both mean that in that I think Naipaul is one of the great writers about fathers, particularly, less so mothers, uh, and, and lots of Critics have right, rightly noted that, um, but in Biswas, in Minuteman, uh, in particular, the, the 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 depth with which he can articulate one's ambi- uh, his, 
uh, ambivalent relationships between fathers and sons, um, a kind of embarrassment, it's also a kind of unease, it's also a kind of fear, it's also a, a, a deep kind of affection and familiarity, um, is, is really, I think, is, is Shakespearean and has a kind of Shakespearean depth and power. Um, and leading on from that, uh, Naipaul was one of the great kind of thinkers, I think, about what we inherit culturally and educationally, um, the pictures of the world that are bequeathed to us um, as children and that we carry with us. Um, so in that sense, Naipaul is you know, very much rooted in his time as one of the great kind of writers of the colonial experience and particularly the, 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 the impress of colonial rule on create, the creative sensibility and the creative subjectivity, um, how it allows us to think, how it allows us to imagine. So I think that's how I would, I would, I would understand, you know, sum up Nightfall's achievement. Thank you. And if you could add one more book to Anthony Burgess's list of 99 novels, which one would it be? Well, it seems to me that in terms of the second half of the 20th century, or the period that Burgess is describing, the great British writer that isn't there is Penelope Fitzgerald. Um, and I can forgive him that because most of Fitzgerald's great books were in fact written after 1984. Um, but, but the, the, you know, in terms of that, the kinds of canon he's trying to create, I would, I would say Fitzgerald's book, The Blue Flower, would be the one that I think is, is a kind of unmissable monument of, of, of that period. From that period, and more kind of related to Naipaul, I think that a book that's a, a, a complete, a, a great classic in the Caribbean, that's, that's not, not sufficiently read outside of the Caribbean and that I'd recommend to everyone, is the great carnival novel, um, a novel about the carnival, but also trying to think about what a, how a carnival might shape narrative form by the Trinidadian writer Earl Lovelace, and that's called The Dragon Can't Dance, and was published in 1979. Thank you very much. Uh, and thank you for joining us on the 99 Novels uh, podcast. I, I wanted to say just before we close that uh, how very much I've enjoyed reading your book. It seems to me you've opened up new avenues for seeing Naipaul, interpreting him. Your books have worked to inhabit, to think about, reflect on. I think it's a remarkable piece of criticism and uh, literary history, which I recommend to anyone, really, who takes an interest in 20th century fiction and travel writing. It's also a book that will send readers back to Naipaul with a fresh set of perspectives. Um, so thank you for that. And, and thank you for uh, joining us here today. Thank you. You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Will Ghosh's book, V.S. Naipaul, Caribbean Writing and Caribbean Thought, is available from Oxford University Press. The theme music is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D minor, performed by No Dice Collective. They can be found online at nodicecollective.com. For more information about Anthony Burgess and the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit anthonyburgess.org. If you'd like to join the conversation and suggest your choice for the 100th novel to add to Burgess's list, you can do so on Twitter using the hashtag 99novels. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.